Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to Compliance Time. In this episode you will hear about the connection between suspicious activity reports and asset recovery. What does asset recovery mean? What we can learn from crypto assets and do they provide a blueprint? If you didn't guess already, guest in Compliance Time is Aidan Larkin, the founder of Asset Reality Ltd. He is a former criminal investigator for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs and has over 10 years financial investigation experience including tracing and realizing assets seized under proceeds of crime and insolvency legislation. Throughout his career, he ran the world's first series of seized crypto auctions and managed a multi-million pound portfolio of criminals seized and confiscated assets spread around the world. His background in asset recovery also includes presenting to global regulators and representing the private sector in front of intergovernmental agencies such as the OECD, UN, FADOF and the EU Commission on Best Practices in Seized Asset Management. Aiden works with law enforcement agencies and governments directly on an advisory basis and continues to act as an asset management consultant on some of the world's largest and most high-profile fraud and corruption cases, managing and realizing assets on agencies' behalf. He remains a visiting lecturer for a number of overseas academies and universities and is a highly sought-after guest speaker at events in international asset recovery, asset management best practices and storage and sale of cryptocurrencies. He also delivers asset management training to government agencies around the world. So it is my pleasure to introduce to Compliance Time podcast, Aidan Larkin. Hello, Ed, and welcome to Compliance Time. I'm really happy that we managed to record this uh, session, and I'm expecting it to be really awesome. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for the invitation. So let's start by telling us a bit more about yourself and your career in compliance. Uh, Over 16 years now, uh, I've been working in a, if we sort of call it the asset recovery industry, which effectively is everything involved with the the seizure of assets to pay a debt, whether it's bankruptcy or insolvency, whether it's proceeds of crime cases. I I started as an investigator in the UK's revenue and customs, uh, and I worked as a tax inspector um, working within criminal investigation. At a a very early stage, we learned around, learned about um, sort of the different ways you could do things. So I was actually within a criminal investigation team, but we were using civil recovery uh, powers to investigate criminals rather than trying to get that burden of proof. It was like the Al Capone effect. You would be able to take an alleged criminal who had wealth and use civil taxation to raise a large debt and you were fundamentally sort of getting and um, dismantling that that criminal or that enterprise through using regular taxation. Uh, and then most recently, I spent over six years, um, eventually as the, the asset recovery director in the, the largest auction, uh, independent auction house in the UK and Ireland, uh, Wilson's Auctions. And we were the de facto proceeds of crime 
contractor. So most other European cities and countries throughout the world have a dedicated asset management office. So where all of the officers seize assets, they go into one central agency and entity. The UK doesn't have that. So it relies on private sector procurement to get these different agents so that they have the capabilities to store assets, recover assets, things like boats and planes and cars and now Bitcoin, um, and then have someone that can store it and sell them. So traditionally, auction houses fit that profile quite well because they have insurance, they have inventory and storage capabilities, and then they have large sale platforms. So it gave me that overview of being the investigator and then being the asset manager. And what I've what I'm hoping to do is now with Asset Reality that I, I founded a year ago is by working with different consultants all around the world, we have found that there are these consistent problems all around the world with the challenges of selling seized assets. So we now, um, I work as a, in a personal capacity, I work with the UNODC um, and other development funds around the world, helping countries try and figure out um, how they can unlock these seized assets to get more money back into society and trying to make the process just work uh, work better. So from a compliance viewpoint, it's when you have this really proactive compliance activity, um, what happens, what you don't want to see is that through your you know, monitoring and proactive work, you've identified money laundering, you've identified a criminal. It's a bit disappointing if you then find out that of the hundreds of millions of dollars that were in your sites, that society only got back a million dollars or so. So it's lovely to talk to you today and sort of tie that together and explain the asset management and asset recovery and how it uh, is very much related to all of the good compliance activity that's being done. Yeah, uh, I would love that. And also uh, to speak a bit more about asset reality, like what do you do now? And um, what are some of the main goals? You did mention that you are cooperating globally. What does that mean as well? Well, what we've noticed is, and again, in a, in a personal capacity, because I, I got to do some really interesting projects with organizations like the UNODC and, and looking into the challenges that different countries were facing around seized and confiscated assets. So every, virtually every sort of man and woman who has worked in a, a law enforcement uh, um, agency in any country in the world will have a story about a seized vehicle sitting in a police station or will know of a boat or a plane or some other asset that has been um, not managed as well as it could be. And when you realize that that money, the money that is generated from the sale of that seized asset is the lifeblood of funding more law enforcement, putting money back into victims, uh, compensating those victims of fraud, for example, but the money is also used for things like you know, um, good social causes. It could be that it helps you know, develop youth programs. It could be used for funding more officers to increase law enforcement activity. So, so, so much good comes out of this, um, this money that is generated through the sale of seized assets that I, I felt almost obliged. I work with a number of charities who, who receive, used to receive proceeds of crime related funding and 
against the backdrop of COVID, there is more time or there's been more focus than ever on agencies maximizing their available revenue and income and society getting as much money back as possible. So I felt that by creating um, Asset Reality, we could have the, the world's first entity that was exclusively focused on helping governments and insolvency practitioners and anyone who deals with seized assets just focus on the asset management issues because in all my travels working all around the world, I wasn't able to, to find that agency. I could find lots of really good asset sales. I could find lots of people that could sell a Rolex and sell a car and sell a house. But as you'll know, that law enforcement activity and compliance activity and all the things we do can take years to get through the court process and to get a conviction. What happens in between and what happens in between is traditionally ineffective asset management that costs everybody a lot of money. So the goal really of, of asset reality is, is to make crime pay for society. We always hear stories that crime should not pay for criminals. But I think that the harsh reality is, is that it does and it, and it pays very, very well. The, the latest statistics repeatedly confirm around the world that we are only confiscating less than 1%, 2% if we're lucky, um, in many jurisdictions. So all of those criminal proceeds, trillions of dollars, I think the United Nations last estimate was in and around $3.6 trillion um, dollars worth of criminal proceeds is in circulation. And that's backed up by the, the money laundering figure, which is always, again, we don't actually know. They're just estimates based on the GDP. Um, but it's trillions. So if we know that there's trillions swimming around in criminal proceeds, then surely our asset recovery statistics, if we were to compare the amount of criminal activity versus drug seizures or criminal activity versus arrests, there's usually a good correlation that we catch most of the bad guys or we know we, we, we have sort of success. Um, COVID's a good example. We're able to say how many people have been infected with COVID and how many vaccinations have we have we delivered. Um, there's really no correlation between asset recovery and the amount of the proceeds. We are so far off the pace as a global community. And, and that is, um, it's hard to really pinpoint one issue. There isn't one entity to blame. Um, I think it's a catalogue of small failings that have just snowballed. But every time the criminals have one extra year of reinvesting their criminal proceeds, they get a little bit further ahead. And despite all of the good work that's done by law enforcement and the private sector and financial institutions reporting this illicit activity, it's a common theme in many countries around the world that they're unable to act on the data because they don't have the resources to process all of the suspicious activity reports. They don't have the amount of investigators because agencies are facing um, sort of many budget cuts and they're, everyone wants more officers, everyone wants more resources and more tools and better software and more people. So if Asset Reality can help bring that money in and maximise the returns to society, then we will, achieve, we will have achieved our goals. But we know it's a, it's a tall order and it's going to take many, many years, but we're trying to bring together all of the best in cl class people uh, and solutions around the world, all of those experienced law enforcement guys and girls who, who know what the issues are and know what the challenges are and start by developing a single platform for all seized assets to be sold on. 
Because if I asked you, then I'd say, where do you go to buy the seized assets in your country? Are you able to tell me the website they're sold on? No, honestly, no. I'm exactly. not even sure how they're selling them. Exactly. <laughs> I would say they're suspicious. <laughs> but, that, but that's the point. We know about eBay. We know about Amazon. We know, we know where to go to do things online. I think it's time that the asset recovery industry caught up and made use of the technology that was available. And we should have these important assets front and center. We shouldn't have to look for which procurement process has been run in my country to find the name of the auction company selling my assets. And some auction companies do a fantastic job at advertising. In in my previous role, we worked with state television stations and we we helped produce programs and, and documentaries that told the story. We, we shouldn't be relying on the auction companies to do that on their own. I mean, that, that should be led um, at a more strategic level, for, uh, for at, a, at an international level from countries. So we try and work with all the different stakeholders involved and try and understand everyone has unique challenges. This is not going to be a quick fix, but there certainly are opportunities for quick wins to identify the low-hanging fruit and try and just start that cultural change um, to, to try and just sort of make a bit of a difference and, and like I say, get more money back than the victims and into society. Yeah, that, that, that's really great. And you really highlighted the importance of asset recovery in general for countries and for societies. And um, But I was just wondering from anti-financial crime perspective, is asset recovery something like after, you know, if you can say that money laundering has the three stages mm-hmm. and we can say that, um, let's say, financial crime compliance can have also several stages, like you have the detection, the prevention, and already like, how would you fit asset recovery after all of that, the rest? It, it's a good question. And I think that I'm, I'm deliberately... I try not to be sort of nonchalant when I mention asset recovery affects everything, but I I truly believe that it does. I mean, bar the exceptional crimes of passion, most crime results in a monetary gain for one or other. It's either the denial of something for one entity or it's enrichment of another entity. There is no way. So if we think that virtually Every bit of illicit activity in terms of the financial crime space, well, you know, the clue is in the word finance. The very fact, you know, criminals are doing it to make a profit. They make a profit, it needs to be laundered. They then need to sort of, so I think the two things are absolutely interwoven. So if we can then look at, look at all of the work that is being done in the anti-financial crime space compared to 20 years ago where we were in terms of reporting standards, in terms of sort of intergovernmental regulators like FATF um, and this, the benchmark that has been set for, for good practice. Look at the work that's being done and extraordinary work that's being done around virtual assets. And then we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. So we've done, if we imagine this as one big production line, I think we're doing all of the good work on the way in. And we've increased all of our standards on the way in at the beginning of this production line or if we someone recently like likened it to a, a marathon or a race that we're doing all of these things in the early miles but at the end when we assess the recovery are we as proud of the recovery statistics as we are of the detection 
And I don't think we can be. And I think if we were to use the example of a fraud case or a insolvency case, if 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 you, Denitza, had no were the career criminal and you'd stolen one hundred million dollars from a large financial institution, if we went back to that financial institution and said we're probably going to get about one percent of this back, would we be happy? They'll be very upset. And but and I think <laughs> and I think that we, we don't we almost accept now because it's so ingrained that asset recovery it's just a problem and we just don't get all of that money back and we've seen this repeated from the the bernie madoffs of the world we've seen all of these huge ponzi schemes where we talk about how much was stolen and how much was recovered and in insolvency cases we have creditors meetings insolvency practitioners are under a lot of pressure to demonstrate what was the return? There's lots of fights over what their fees are and all of these things happen. But when you go into the proceeds of crime world, I often just think it's almost it's just accepted that it, it's just underperforms. And when we say, and there's there's two important strands to this, so I want to I want to make a distinction. I mean, asset recovery is not a commercial activity. So for the record, asset management offices are not there to generate revenue. If your yeah. only job is to deny and deprive criminals of assets. And some of these cases take 20 years to get through court and it costs you money and it costs the government money, but it has a positive effect on society, then so be it. That's a cost of doing business. But what I'm talking about is where we clearly have opportunities to increase the returns from our anti-financial crime activity. When we don't do that, just because of breaks in the process or lack of understanding or lack of training or lack of sort of coherent processes and systems, I think that's something that needs urgent attention. And we're seeing now with COVID, some countries have already reacted because of budget deficits. Nigeria has recently issued a presidential decree to get all of the seized assets in the country and within six months sell everything because of the budget deficit. But what I'm worried about as a global citizen as I'm worried that there will now be a knee-jerk reaction and what could be, for example, you know, $500 million worth of assets, if they're sold quickly in a fire sale, in a rushed way, then are they just going to compound the problem by getting low returns for, for the assets? So I think that the, the anti-financial crime space, all of that work is being done. Hundreds of million dollars are being spent every year probably billions, I wouldn't be surprised, collectively, by the, the global community on detecting. But we also know that for every thousands of these suspicious activity reports that are submitted, resources are not oftenly, often matched on the other side. And law enforcement does simply does not have the ability to access and process all of these suspicious activity reports. Whereas in a perfect world, Every time a bank submits something suspicious, you would love someone to be able to look at that. And I think we're going to rely more and more on technology and AI and other sort of clever tools that are being developed to try and make that detection easier and faster. That's great. Yeah, I think it would be really, really good if you can submit a suspicious activity report and then um, have it being investigated in short time because the time the timing is important in this things like uh, 
criminals are moving the money faster. We even, when we previously discussed some luxury goods and stuff, you had some um, great opinion about uh, how there the suspicious activity should be reported as well. Yeah, I, I do think that the financial sector, look, I, I, have, I have been a very outspoken critic of, of many professional enablers and financial institutions that have turned a blind eye um, in, in, in lieu of profit in many occasions. But I think I would also be the first to say that the financial sector has, has made that investment and has spent substantial amounts of money um, on trying to sort of improve that ecosystem and deserve credit for that. And again, they must be frustrated when, like you say, thousands and millions around the world of these suspicious activity reports are being submitted, but then they're not being acted on. And we are seeing some wonderful initiatives at a local level um, across the UK, across Europe, and some of the projects I'm, I'm, I'm closely involved with, and I, I can't go into too much detail on, but suffice to say that there are project teams being set up to start to look at these suspicious activity reports to try and move very, very quickly and use legislation where appropriate to freeze those accounts because it is real-time information. And yes, it can be used. I've I, I seen this firsthand when I was a, uh, an investigator in Revenue and Customs. It's great when you can go in and type in someone's name and, and profile a suspicious activity report and you can see that, yep, they lodged large amounts of cash and you can go in and that can be part of your investigative strategy when you're interviewing someone. But in reality, a perfect world, what we would love to see is you know, someone has just moved you know, $100,000 through their bank account. You look into it and see that they have no tax return. And they've also were involved um, in a sort of you know, a minor offence uh, a year before where they were stopped with you no know, small amount of um, drugs in the car. And all of a sudden now you've got a bank account with $100,000 in it. If you can see that and act on that in the same day or two, then you could get an account freezing order, freeze the account. And all of a sudden you've made the best use of that financial intelligence that your partners in the private sector and the financial institutions have given you. They've given you that lead. You've turned it into something. But where I think, that to the point you initially made, where I think we are not firm enough is in the luxury goods sector because all of this work can be done. We, we are so hard on the crypto asset sector with all of these new benchmarks and world leaders and prime ministers and presidents you know, saying all sorts of silly things and uh, just perpetuating urban legends around the some of the exaggerated threats around crypto assets. And I'll, and I'll come to that in a minute. There are certainly threats around countries turning a blind eye to crypto assets. But let's be really clear. Cash will be king for a very, very long time. And when I can go to an art gallery and I can spend $40 million on a painting and use an intermediary, and even if I'm subject to sanctions, and this has been, this has been documented in the US, the US Senate report put out a very, very good document looking at sanctions evasions through the art market, for example, when intermediaries and the auction houses, strictly speaking, were doing nothing wrong because they were doing the KYC on the intermediary. But the intermediary could be registered in a foreign jurisdiction. But because they did that first bit of checking, there's no one to check between the intermediary and the actual buyer. 
Um, so I think the this luxury goods industry, where you can go and buy a $1 million watch and walk through an airport, when you can go and spend you know, um, hundreds of thousands of pounds on a, on a handbag, for example. And if we look at some of the cases in the public domain, the 1MDB, biggest, yeah. biggest corruption case in the world, $280 million worth of items were recovered from the home of the ex-Prime Minister. Yeah. Where's the suspicious activity report? When someone, when someone buys 200 handbags at over $150,000 per handbag, I mean, where's the report from the Hermes? Where's the report from the, the, the sort of the luxury boutique? Where's the report from the Harrods when someone goes in and spends? And we are seeing in, in some cases, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I want to make it quite clear, I'm not picking on Harrods. I'm, I'm picking on, I'm, na- I'm naming them because of the big brand. But I guess that's what we, I think that there needs to be in countries um, overall sort of risk assessment and AML risk assessment. And the UK, for example, just in their recent um, sort of national risk assessment, highlighted the the risks played by risks displayed um, through movement of assets through luxury goods. And I, again, I don't think it's understood enough, and I don't think enough is being done in those particular sectors by the sector themselves. The the way the financial um, the sort of the uh, the way the sort of the, the financial ecosystem has reacted, and the way the sort of financial services providers have reacted, um, and sort of rose to the challenge in many jurisdictions, and we have lots of multi-agency task forces with partners from different banks and different institutions all working collaboratively. Um, I think we need to now see that in the luxury asset um, industry around the world because there's a lot of questionable transactions. Um, people buying supercars in central London for £300,000, selling the car three days later, getting a refund paid into a different bank account. They're, they're either at best negligent or at worst complicit. But either which way, the penalty for turning a blind eye isn't high enough. Um, and in every case I've been involved in, when there's a high value asset, we often see very, very much repetitive names. We see the same shops, we see the same stores, we see the same you know, um, brands being purchased direct. So I think there, I think I mean, perhaps that's where AI and developments of technology and different tools will come in to sort of try and help that because I appreciate it's a huge data um, issue. But I definitely think it's a, it's, a, it's a hugely risky area that a lot of people underestimate. Yeah, that's true, especially when the purchases are done with cash because when it's a credit card, you know, you, you you would link it somewhere somehow through some bank with the source and et cetera. But, but mm. when it's cash and when it's such a large amounts of luxury goods, I, I watched some documentary for 1MDB and what they took out of the house of um, Najib was. Najib was that. Yeah, what they took out. It's mind blowing. I mean, sometimes I think that I cannot imagine the amount of money, how it would look like, you know, you see one million or I don't know, many millions and you just look at it and they're just numbers. You don't think about it, but when you you start seeing also how that... It it is correct. You do become numb to it when you see just the sheer volumes and how do you you quantify that? And that was one of the questions I, I would love to ask 
I mean, in, I've just, I'm not going to pretend my memory is that good. I've got it in front of me because I've spoken about it previously at events. But I mean, in one apartment, 1,400 necklaces, 567 handbags, 423 watches, 2,000 rings, 1,600 brooches, 14 t- uh, tiaras, estimated to be worth $275 million. Was there a suspicious activity report for any of those transactions? I hope so. But I'm not sure if there were. And one could argue maybe they were bought over time. But come on, if you're a sales manager in one of those large boutiques, you know your big customers. You know the people that are coming in to spend millions of dollars with you. You know the shipping addresses of where these are going to. Um, I if you're if you run a, a large sort of um art auction house or art gallery, you know the people who are buying the $40 million paintings. And you know their intermediaries as well. So I, I am a bit of a cynic. I have worked in those industries. I know the data that's available. Um, so I would, I would definitely challenge anybody that says, I didn't know who the ultimate buyer was. And if you didn't know, then you need to be asking a question or we need to be doing more in that sector to try and... Because for all of the work we can do with the global financial centres and all of the work we can do to stop money moving through different accounts and jurisdictions, and there will always be weaknesses in any system, it's just so much easier to walk through an airport with a, I mean, I can, the, 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 I think people forget the world record for a, a watch at auction for a Rolex stainless steel was $17 million. I can walk through an airport with $17 million on my wrist with a, um, I can also have a wallet with crypto assets and I can have some diamonds. And I mean, I don't need containers of cash. I can go and do that and then sell it at my destination and we've seen lots of cases like that, UK criminals going to different countries in Europe, wearing the watch, and then just going and cashing the watch in at a, a jeweler and getting a bank transfer. And all of a sudden, they've just laundered the funds. They've got a nice transaction that the, their dear old uncle left them a watch in their will, and it was worth a lot of money. And they brought it to a jewellery shop, and it was sold um, on their behalf, and they traded it in, and they now have a nice entry in a bank statement from a reputable jeweller's paying them the money into their bank and it looks like a clean transaction where it's all very contrived so i definitely think the industry needs to do more yeah exactly if the people are from the industries or are not obliged to do anything like they're not obliged to report they're not obliged to say anything many of them for sure i agree with you know who the ultimate buyer is or that there's something shady you know Mm -hmm. this is a politician from where they're going to have three million or whatever if um they're working normally but but yeah never mind so yeah. <laughs> let's let's move along to um crypto assets as we started mentioning them here and there would you say that they are riskier than the tangible assets and what are some of the challenges in front of the virtual assets industry i yeah this this is always a tricky one because i'm a okay. I, i'm a huge advocate of blockchain technology and the, the different things it can do. So I know I know many people, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jeffrey Robinson as well for, for my own podcast, which still hasn't been, been launched because of, uh, because of COVID and that we wanted to hold off and just complete a few series. So um, I know that um, many people are outspoken critics of crypto assets. Um, I'm not. Absolutely not. I think that blockchain technology is a is a wonderful advancement. Um, I think it's going to underpin a lot of day-to-day things that we currently do. But I completely understand that there is huge risks associated 
when you can move substantial amounts of value anywhere in the world. So I look at it exactly the same way I look at the risks around the art market and, and other markets like that. But I accept that when it's intangible, it moves faster. So I guess that I have two, two hats that I wear. On one side, I advocate that governments cannot turn a blind eye and that if they do not have a robust process in place and make use of the technology that is available, they will become the safe haven for those that want to do bad things with crypto assets. And we already see the sort of regulatory arbitrage where the non-compliant crypto entities that are you know, laundering money and doing lots of bad things are setting up in the jurisdictions that are just not ready um, to have an infrastructure in place. And um, FATF, I've been very clear. Um, the the message is coming from them you know, that FATF will not tolerate you know, anyone that sort of you know, just does not sort of get their house in order um, around virtual asset service providers. You cannot be, and I also understand the challenges. I understand the economic opportunities that come with you know being open for business and that countries need to generate money, particularly smaller uh, island jurisdictions and people that have sort of limited sort of um, export possibilities that you want to be a financial center. You want to generate lots of fees. You want to generate jobs and, and do good things in the country. But it's a double-edged sword. And if you're going to be open for business, you need to have an enforcement regime in place so that when you identify bad actors or when overseas jurisdictions identify bad actors in your jurisdiction, that you can act swiftly and secure those assets. So I, I think that crypto assets have the potential to be riskier than tangible assets because of the ease at which they can be moved. But what I will say is that crypto assets actually have been solved. All of the technology already exists. There is a wealth of options available. Um, asset reality, we have a partnership with Chainalysis. I mean, we see the excellent work that those guys have been doing from you know, welcome to video, shutting down child pedophile, um, uh, pedophile rings where all of the people involved were using um, Bitcoins as payment. They were able to track track the IP addresses and work with law enforcement partners to be able to make, I think, over 300 arrests in 30 countries. That just wouldn't be possible if you were trying to unravel the traditional banking system where it takes months to go from one point to another point to another point. So blockchain analysis, if you get it right and you have the staff and the tools is a wonderful opportunity for bridging that gap. We talked earlier on about the, the huge disparity in asset recovery versus what is spent against what is recovered, um, spent by the criminals and recovered by law enforcement. Crypto asset recovery, we've already seen last year, the US Marshals and sorry, the IRS in the United States, you know, a $3 billion seizure of crypto assets. I mean, put that into context. The US Marshals sold $2 billion worth of assets the year before. So in one seizure, they've got more money in crypto assets, let alone the other tangible assets. Um, so I think the crypto assets present a really interesting opportunity. And if I was in, if I was some political world leader that people listen to, I would ensure that all governments have a robust crypto asset recovery process in place with the right tools, because they can shut those loopholes that money launderers will seek to use. They can shut down the terrible potential atrocities that exist. We've seen the Easter bombings, um, uh, the Bali bombings as well, and things like that that were funded. Um, we, we you know, ISIS and ISIL are on record as accepting Bitcoin donations 
Um, there's been lots in northern Syria recently was in the press. Again, in the middle of this non-technologically advanced village was a Bitcoin ATM. So there's there's all where they're just processing cash. So there's 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 different ways that these loopholes are being exploited, but I'm confident that law enforcement has the tools and is up to the task. And we are shutting those loopholes all around the world. So I don't think, but I think it just takes a couple of countries to have loose regulations around crypto assets and they will become those dangerous hubs. So um, I think the, the challenge for virtual assets is getting people to take it seriously. It is astonishing how many countries that we interact with that will say it's not an issue here. It's an issue everywhere. It is moving around the world, borderless, peer-to-peer. Um, so for people to say it's not an issue or we don't have an issue with crypto seizures, well, that's like me saying I don't have an issue with gold seizures if I don't dig and look for gold. If I don't dig and look for diamonds, it's, it's like saying you don't have an AML problem if you don't ever check anything. You, you, you'll, you, you, you'll never have a high-risk marker if you don't ever risk assess anything. So I think that countries that are possibly kidding themselves when they, I often think about the countries that say um, they don't have an issue with COVID. It's because they're not, <laughs> because they're not looking. Um, I, I sort of think anecdotally about some of the, the statistics in some of the countries that are a bit suspicious. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's the big risk. It's actually, I, I lecture for the Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna and I, I talk as part of the master's course on asset recovery and asset management. And we were just debating actually with the, the students this year uh, about risks around crypto assets. And I will sort of regularly talk about people used to groan when they had a Bitcoin seizure. And now I try and tell people that you, know, you should be cheering if it's a crypto seizure because it's the easiest one you'll ever deal with. You know, digitally, you don't need a warehouse. You don't need a compound. It doesn't rust. It's not an animal. I mean, I've sold a horse at auction. Trust me, it's worse. It's worse managing a seized horse than it is or seized cattle or livestock. So with crypto assets, all of the component parts are in place. I think we're at risk of picking on the new kids and expecting the crypto assets in that industry has to do much, much more proportionately versus luxury goods and other sectors that are clearly high risk. Um, for AML, but like I say, my my I could talk about this subject for days. The the I think that I think that all the component parts exist for us to solve the risky parts of crypto assets and mitigate it away down to a very very low amount. And it's kind of like cash. Cash has got so out of control that we don't even know how much is laundered every year. We all can agree it's a lot. It's in the trillions. We simply don't know. With crypto assets and the very nature of the distributed public ledger, we can see where everything is. We can see when it moves and how it moves. We have a really, really good opportunity to catch it before it gets out of control. And all of the statistics, the analysis report, shows that a lot of the illicit activity is less than 1% of crypto transactions. Now, I think that whilst that 1% sounds very, very low, it obviously, it can't, it can see when someone interacts with the dark web or uses a, a website that has been known to conduct itself in illicit activity, but that's not the same. That that 1%, I think, is a bit of a, we shouldn't rest on our laurels. It doesn't know when someone is evading tax or laundering money and moving it between two reputable places. So there's always still the bigger AML. 
risk. But I think we should just we should look at virtual assets in the context of any other asset category and not necessarily think that it's the it's the big dangerous and clear and present threat. I think that cash, we still have a long, long way to go before we sort of fix um before it catches up and is anywhere the same risk um that cash poses. Yeah, I think mainly the, the for the virtual assets, it also comes from the understanding you mentioned that some countries don't have problem with um, Bitcoins or virtual assets, crypto assets. Probably it's because they, they don't understand them fully, you know, um, yeah. they, they're, they're putting this very complex um, terminology and what really is, and it just gets into the weeds of it. <laughs> Do you know what it is? It is a good point because many people are possibly overcomplicating the issue. Again, it's, it's something that I've been. It's, it's an area that I've been working on extensively for the last twelve months. Um, from a having conversations at, at country levels within the UNODC capacity to working with sort of development agencies, the likes of GIZ and the EU Anti-Corruption Initiative in the Ukraine. And so we, we get to hear an asset reality. We get to hear lots of different perspectives and lots of really sort of sensible suggestions and feedback with how countries are approaching it. But as you rightly point out, there's often a need to sort of remain quite um calm about the process and not diving into the detail and i i re- probably the most common question i get when i deliver any sort of crypto asset management training is sort of you know how do you see something that's intangible and what do we need to do as a country um to deal with this new category of asset and usually the answer is nothing different you already have the legislation that allows you to seize intangible assets virtually every piece of legislation in the world has commonality of language and it'll always say that you can seize incorporeal property or real property or tangible or intangible we've dealt with this from the the internet sort of dot com bubble i mean business.com i think sold for 350 million dollars at, at its height so we, we don't need to change legislation around asset seizure. It's just an intangible asset. There's been numerous court cases around the world now that have re- reinforced that crypto is property. We've had the the, the pleasure of working with um, uh, many of the, the QCs and law firms, uh, Brandsmiths sort of springs to, to mind, who actually got those decisions at court. Um, we've seen that in the UK as well, Raman Ravelli and others. There's, there's been lots of good decisions and lots of heated debates around crypto, but what everyone, bar one decision that I've seen in Russia, um, everyone sort of unanimously agrees is crypto is property. It's, it's personal property, digital gold, call, call it, you know, whatever, whatever way you want to compare it to something. But where the effort needs to be expended is on your side of the fence. It's on the, the the KYC, the AML. It's on that side because you can shut it all down. There's we we work um, in partnership with with digital custodians and realization providers. And again, I'm probably doing myself out of a job when we say that's the easy bit. The the easy bit is there's so many incredibly detailed uh, tools that can trace transactions. I mean, the, the Twitter hack where remember Barack Obama and Elon Musk and all of these accounts were hacked and they asked them to send. Yeah sort of funds to if you imagine that was non-blockchain and non-bitcoin and they were bank accounts how long it would take to map that fraud money being moved all around the world whereas because it was done on the bitcoin blockchain i mean i think chainalysis within hours if not less than a day 
had mapped out everything and you know, they, they were commenting on it later on that evening saying okay it moved from here to here here's the people here's some open source information you know you can see that I mean, you just needed to Google the name of the person who was requesting some of the funds when the, and you could find records and old forums and things. And so actually, that's why I'm quite calm about crypto assets, because all of the component parts are there to investigate, store, seize and do everything. And it, it, could, it could become our golden goose. I truly believe that if governments double down on crypto asset recovery and um, because of the value of the cryptocurrency portfolio globally, You've got this trillion-dollar industry that didn't exist a number of years ago. And like I say, the, the U.S. is always a good benchmark for you know, high-volume activity. If the U.S., I think the U.S. Marshals have seized, at today's price, they've seized over $15 billion worth of Bitcoin alone. That's a lot of money going back into the pot. Now, obviously, a lot of that was seized back in 2014 and 15 when it was worth a lot less. But it's out there to be seized. So I think that it could really, I would love to be having this conversation in a couple of years' time and saying that no crypto asset recovery returns are proportionately so much higher than normal assets that the other assets are catching up. So for every illegal $1 worth of crypto, we're actually getting back 40 or 50 sort of cents um, versus the current non-crypto asset statistics that are you no know, 1% of criminal proceeds are intercepted. I think that the blueprint exists with virtual assets. Um, and that complex assets can learn a lot from the, the level of public and private sector collaboration that we've seen that has made virtual assets a safer space. I think we need to capture that enthusiasm and apply it to all of the rest of the assets. That's great, really. And I do agree. Let's have another chat in about three or four years from now. Let's <laughs> see where say. we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm setting the time in the calendar now. <laughs> um, because we are coming close to the end, mm -hmm. I always ask at the end of the Compliance Time uh, podcast the same question. So feel free to address it as you wish. What is the future? I mean, I know that we already spoke a lot about the future in terms of AI technology and mm -hmm. um, countries and governments, but how do you see the future of AML and financial crime compliance in general? Yeah, I, I think we've talked a lot for years. Virtually every government, the UK obviously is where I'm based, and we, we've seen lots of the, the different economic crime strategies and action recovery action plans, and every country has their own sort of version of these things, where they we all accept now that we're at a critical mass. I mean, we, we, have, we are losing the battle. There's no two ways. Despite the valiant efforts of our law enforcement professionals, they don't have enough resources. They don't have enough funding. Um, in many, many cases, to do the job we need them to do. And a lot of financial crime investigation is also um, politically motivated. You know, it's very hard if you're a chief constable to justify a four or five year multi-layered money laundering investigation that doesn't deliver the headlines as a big cocaine seizure at the docks does or a big machine gun seizure. So I think that no, law enforcement has a much harder job than, than people give them credit for. I think the future has to be more collaboration with the private sector. You have financial, um, the financial industry with lots of skilled people with access to clever tools that could be doing a lot more. Would I love to see um, sort of through the, the right regulation and procurement framework, should we have more external receivers investigating asset recovery cases? Absolutely. Should we have more financial centers and technology companies profiling SARS and working in collaboration and supporting government agencies? 
I think so. I mean, it's we're we're in a big data world now. I think that all of these, and again, we're seeing this in the blockchain. We're seeing this in crypto. The template has been laid down. Companies like Chainalysis inform governments and have helped been at the forefront of these massive seizures. Other blockchain analysis companies are doing the same now and following that lead where there, is a, there, there has been collaboration because there has been no other way to do it. If you, It's like at the beginning of the pandemic, no one said, let's invent our own video conferencing. We use Zoom, we use Teams. I hadn't heard of Zoom. I'm not going to be one of those people that say I knew it before. Um, I, hadn't <laughs> heard of Zoom. I hadn't heard of Zoom until, until COVID. Um, but I didn't, try, I didn't try and invent anything. So I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. I think we've proven that public and private sector collaboration can really help you know, be the sum of all parts and pull together our resources. Um, do we? Is there a role for private prosecution and civil recovery cases and even cases taken on? But perhaps I think that's, um, that's something that we could see in the future. But what I would really love to see in, in, the, in the shortest possible amount of time is holding things to account and tracking things through and really breaking things down and learning from what we learn in the insolvency sector. In the insolvency sector, if there is a loss, we track the case through and we assess how much we got back for creditors. I think financial crime compliance and AML, wouldn't it be great as an officer? What, what better way could you incentivize a compliance officer to be able to say, do you remember the SAR that you submitted for that suspicious bit of activity? Yep. Two years later, we locked the guy up and we got a million pounds back for society. And this is what we did. And no, because you could maybe link your SAR to a big arrest, but I would challenge you to try and find out, link that arrest to the amount of money that came back. It just gets lost along the way. So I think perhaps there's an opportunity to maybe link the system a bit more. I mean, criminals launder money, spend money, save money, and that cycle just keeps going um, in, in any particular order, whereas our tools to fight it are all quite disjointed. People in AML don't talk to people in asset recovery. People in asset recovery don't talk to people in financial crime compliance. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Our industry doesn't match the battle that we're fighting. And our response to COVID is very much joined up multifunction task force because we need to do lots of different things in an agile way. I think that hopefully we'll see COVID has almost forced us to become more collaborative and more agile and doing things over Zoom and video conferencing that never would have been dreamt of um, before COVID. So hopefully we can capture that enthusiasm to which we've been resilient during the pandemic, how we've approached virtual assets, and we can turn that to the normal AML financial crime compliance sphere and just have a more innovative and collaborative model going forward. Because I think that will make the difference. That will take us from you know, millions being recovered to billions and eventually trillions being recovered because we're we're in no dispute. We know what the top line is. We know trillions are being laundered in criminal proceeds. That's what we need to be aiming for. That's what we should be getting back into society. But it's going to take um, uh, a lot of work and a lot of effort to get there. That's a, that's a really great outlook. And I hope even if we don't reach the trillion, let's imagine we can reach the billion. Yeah, we, <laughs> should, we, we should be getting to the billions. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for your participation in uh, participation compliance time. I'm looking forward for our next uh, chat in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And God knows what Bitcoin will be worth then anyway. So thanks very much for, for having me. It's, it's, it's great to talk to different people from different sectors because um, asset recovery is a big sort of 
tapestry. I think the more we can all learn from each other's sectors and how it impacts on the, uh, and people, the better. So thank you again for the invitation to, to talk to you today. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review, which will help others to find the podcast. Also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website, cmpltime.com. And don't forget, check out our new blog. Thank you. Till next week.